This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special. And they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Unfunded pension obligations have risen to $1.9 trillion from $292 billion since 2007. Today we talk about public pension systems, partisanship, and problem solving. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsu Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome 
to another episode of Pantsuit Politics, everybody. Before we get started, we wanted to share that our interview with Brandon Harvey from Sounds Good is up. We recorded this interview together in the same space while we were in Nashville for our live podcast, and it was really an amazing conversation. We had a great time, and now you guys can all go check it out on Sounds Good with Brandon Harvey, which you can find in the podcast app or on in Android Music. In the Pearls today, we're going to talk about the president's contemplated actions on DACA and the most recent missile test in North Korea. In the suit, we're going to discuss Kentucky's pension crisis and how it relates to sort of the national conversation around public pensions and taxes and partisanship and problem solving. And then in the heels, as always, we'll discuss what's on our minds outside of politics. And before we get started with DACA, we wanted to say that our Patreon page is going amazingly. We are like $200 and some change away from meeting our $3,000 monthly subscription goal. And when we meet that goal, we're going to launch a little side podcast project in which we answer, we get, kind of leave politics aside and answer some deeper questions and talk about um, bigger, bigger issues, a more nuanced perspective on life instead of just politics. So we're really excited about that. So we're getting really close to our goal. So if you want to support Pantsuit Politics, go over to patreon.com forward slash Pantsuit Politics. There are all levels of support and a secret garden of additional content you open up at every level. Thanks for all the support so far, guys. It really means the world. So I thought we could do a little bit of what is DACA kind of lightning round. DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This is a policy that President Obama announced via executive action in June of 2012. And I think there is so much misinformation out there about DACA that it's important to know what this does and doesn't do. So in 2012, on the 30th anniversary of a Supreme Court decision that barred public schools from charging tuition to illegal immigrants, the president announced that he was going to put forward this program for president people. Obama. <laughs> yes, President Obama. For people who had entered the United States before turning 16 and before June 2007. And that's important because we're talking about a limited group of people. To be eligible, you also have to be in school, a high school graduate, or honorably discharged from the military. At the time that he announced this, you had to be under 31 as of June 15th, 2012, and have no felony convictions, significant misdemeanor convictions, or three total misdemeanors, or otherwise pose a threat to national security. And if you meet those qualifications and you pay a fee and show some documentation to prove that you meet those qualifications, you get a renewable two-year period of deferred action from deportation. So you get to be here for two years, and you're eligible for a work permit. This does not provide a path to citizenship. It does not qualify you for welfare or federal student aid. And you can lose this status if you do something that would cause you to pose a threat to public safety or national security. So that is what DACA does and does not do. Congress immediately in 2012, because remember 2012 was Republicans in Congress hate everything President Obama does. Republicans voted to defund DACA, but that didn't work because the fees for DACA pay for the program. There's a $495 filing fee, also a separate fee that's over $500 if you want to travel outside the United States during your period of DACA eligibility. So Congress tried, but the program went on. 
in 2014, President Obama tried to expand DACA to include more people. There is a lawsuit ongoing about the legality of that expansion and an injunction preventing the expansion from going into effect. But the original DACA is still in place. So this is obviously a pretty new policy in terms of data. But we have we do know from a 2016 study from the Journal of Public Economics that DACA has increased labor force participation and decreased the unemployment rate for people eligible for this status. So here is my nuanced take. I was reading some reporting on Trump's decision and where he was coming from. And apparently a lot of the hardliners in his administration felt like, you know, this is Congress's job, not the president's. And we're sort of going to force their hands by delaying this six months and they're going to have to um, get it together and figure out what Congress's um, sort of immigration solution is. And I know you also had some concerns about the executive order. So I understand the concerns about the president interfering within this realm that has traditionally been the legislative branch's authority. I understand um, concerns about the rule of law, particularly a large section of our population's concerns about the rule of law with specifically with regards to immigration. I think that the biggest issue for me with that, that sort of approach is Congress already has a lot on their plate and I'm not sure if they could handle one more thing, but I'm trying to remain hopeful. I feel like that was very nuanced of me. I thought that was very nuanced to be, Sarah. I liked that. Because everybody feel my effort. I hope you could. I did, at the time, agree on substance and disagree on process. Okay, it's hard to be more pro-immigration than I am. I think immigration is so good for our country in every way. I've said a million times on the podcast that I don't think the United States belongs to me more than Mm -hmm. anybody who wasn't born here. And so I am very much in favor of immigration and I am in favor of comprehensive immigration form that makes more people be here legally and makes the process easier to do that. So that's my kind of outreach to what's traditionally thought of as the other side, although I think it's very consistent with my view of government to feel that way about it. So with all that said... President Obama did this via executive order, which I thought was the wrong thing to do. I think Congress should have passed it, but it's done. Mm -hmm. And I think it is very wrong now to have people who are in the category that qualifies for DACA sitting around fearing deportation. I think that's a terrible thing to do. I think it's a wholly unnecessary thing to do. I think the timing of it is terrible because so many people in Texas and western Louisiana Mm -hmm qualify under DACA, and now you've got them suffering through a hurricane and wondering if they're going to be deported at the very time that they need to be able to access resources. The other thing that I, that really bothers me about this is I think that people conflate so many issues. So I hear people who are against DACA and generally more friendly immigration policy talking about how they don't want their tax dollars supporting people who came into the country illegally. But DACA just says the federal government isn't going to deport you. It doesn't say that the state government has to give you tuition, in-state tuition to college Mm -hmm. or state-level benefits or even a driver's license. There is varying state law all over our country in terms of what status, what DACA status does for you under state law. 
So I just think that we come at this problem with an absence of facts around the the economic side of it. I also think saying came here illegally is problematic because these people were children and they did not come anywhere. They were brought. Absolutely. And so I think that's the biggest misconception with regards to DACA or even willful ignorance. My issue is when we talk about immigration and particularly when we talk talk about a group that is deserving of our most open attitudes towards immigration because they were children brought here when they were underage is, you know, again, I try desperately to be in the mindset of people who are very concerned about tax dollars and the rule of law. But if your emphasis on the rule of law is at the cost of sort of our values as a country You know, I just I think the balance is a little out of whack because both of those things have to be true. Both, you know, the give us your tired on the Statue of Liberty, give us your poor, give us your hungry. And remembering that when many of our ancestors came here, there weren't rules like this in place. There wasn't a chance for them to, you know, disobey the rule of law to come here because there weren't any laws about that. You just came. And so I just I don't know. I struggle and I it's not that I want to dismiss people's concerns about the rule of law, about um, economics and taxpayer resources. I don't. And I don't live in a in a community in which a large amount of those taxpayer resources are being used for immigration issues. And full disclosure, I just don't. However, I mean, I just think that they, you know, we have to hold space for both things. And I don't think we do a really great job of that. And, you know, and I don't, I also think we have to be careful not to, you know, anybody who is concerned about the rule of law and taxpayer resources um, are just not monsters that don't care about kids. Like, I don't think that's helpful either. But I do think that when we talk about this law in particular, there does does seem to be a sort of a willful, willful ignorance and a willful disregard for the actual reality of the situation. Well, and lots of Republicans have said we Congress should do something to to codify this. Like yeah. this, this is what the law should be. This is the correct policy. Mitt Romney, when he ran for president um, against President Obama, said that he would keep DACA in place until Congress could act. And a lot of Republicans are there. So Republicans have control of Congress. It's time to act. Now, I can hear our listeners, many of them, saying to their iPhones or headphones or however they listen to us, like this isn't you guys are having a conversation that's not what this is about for the Trump administration. And I think that's fair. The reporting is that Jeff Sessions was a major advocate for doing this. And it is a completely reasonable perspective to say that everything the Trump administration has done in the realm of immigration is motivated by xenophobia and white nationalism. And I Mm -hmm. think it would be giving short shrift to this conversation to ignore that. The other thing, though, is that our conversations with our legislators don't have to be about that. And that's what we need to do right now. We need to be reaching out to our legislators with facts, with reasoned consideration of the arguments, and trying to push this forward in a direction that a Republican Congress can do something really good for the country about. I agree with you that six months is too short. I think that 18 months or two years would have been more reasonable because we've seen Congress trying to act on immigration for a decade and they have not gotten it done. 
There's a really cynical way to look at that six-month period that the president wanted to play to his base and then blame Congress. Or someone tweeted to us, and I think this is fair also, that if I think this was the lazy genius, actually, I love her, um, that tweeted that, you know, this is more like suspense before a commercial break or something. And I think it's fair to look at the Trump administration in that way. My hope is that Congress can do something short term. You know, this is going to happen in six months. So they could put something very short term in place and then kick the can down for a longer immigration solution. That seems to be what they're best at doing. So that might not be a terrible outcome here. I heard news coverage of this recently and they kept saying his campaign promise. And I kind of wanted to just be like, hey, y'all, stop bringing that up because, you know, that's going to push him into action. I mean, I think a lot of this is he feels like his. Um, hand is being forced because there have been so many campaign promises that he has not been able to keep. And so this was when he could. And I think that's part of this, the, the calculus as well. I thought we would end our conversation with a story that I read, um, from the Houston Chronicle that I think is important considering our, our conversation on the last episode about sort of the way we feel about the people in Houston and Hurricane Harvey and, keeping that perspective as we have tough, controversial conversations. And it said, um, nearly four days after Harvey's record flooding slammed a rescue boat into an Interstate 45 frontage road bridge, family members of the final missing volunteer pulled his body from Cypress Creek in spring. Alonzo Gillian, a 31-year-old disc jockey from Lufkin, was a recipient of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. His father is a lawful permanent, but his mother is still in the application process for legal status. Reached at her home in Mexico, across the border from Eagle Pass, Rita Ruiz de Gillian, 62, said she hoped U.S. Customs and Border Protection officials would take pity and grant her a humanitarian visa so that she could come to Houston and bury her son. But she was turned back at the border where we are with God. There are no borders, she said, man-made borders on this earth. And I just thought that was an important perspective because... Um, Alonzo probably didn't know the people he was rescuing. He didn't know their position on DACA, but he went out there and he tried to help them anyway. Sarah, I wish that you would not try to make me cry in every episode. <laughs> Sarah, it's my number thing, one like... goal, everyone, just in case you didn't know. Okay. Let's talk about North Korea. I was going to say, on a lighter note, I mean, I feel like that's a transition every time to North Korea. I don't mean to make light but like seriously if you can't have gallows humor about north korea i don't know what we're all gonna do because i don't have another but i don't have another better strategy in case anyone else does okay so on sunday north korea tested a hydrogen bomb underground and it was a very powerful test the explosive yield for this was 50 to 120 kilotons. That means absolutely nothing to me. And CNN helped me put this in context by saying that the nuclear weapon dropped in 1945 in Hiroshima created a yield of 15 kilotons. And it instant, that one instantly killed 80,000 people. Yes. And so we are talking orders of magnitude beyond that. It has been all tough talk from the United States since then. Um, General Mattis gave a press conference promising a massive military response if North Korea threatens the United States or its allies. You might remember from a few episodes ago that Guam is a territory of the United States that North Korea has um, made gestures toward threatening in the past. 
Japan is obviously um, very, very concerned about this activity in North Korea. And then South Korea is a U.S. ally. And in some ways, uh, we protect South Korea quite a bit. So its allies is a broad definition. Nikki Haley has said that North Korea is begging for war and that it's time to exhaust all of our diplomatic options. The U.N. Security Council is meeting about this this week. And the president tweeted that he is considering all options, including stopping trade with all countries doing business with North Korea, which seems almost objectively false because that would include China and prompt a global recession if we stopped trade with China. I mean, I don't understand why he's going when it, things get more serious. He feels like the proper approach is to attack South Korea and China. Help me. Help me understand. I think he thinks he's putting pressure on them. I just think the thing is he's trying to, you know, when you do a real estate deal, there are not a lot of long-term factors hanging in the balance for each of the constituents other than the deal at hand, right? And a lot of people in that world, and part of what makes them so successful in that world is that they really compartmentalize. Like we go to the mat on this deal, and then we can look at our next deal separately. And sure, relationships matter, and it's more complex than all of that. But I just think that the stakes in the kinds of negotiations that our president has experience with, you see how I'm trying now? We're really trying this episode. I feel you. I feel you. Um, So I think the stakes in the negotiations our president is used to are just so different than what's happening here. And the entirety of the future of the human race. Well, that and, and even the economic stakes in terms of this tweet about stopping business. I mean, China gives North Korea cash. It gets natural resources from North Korea. China's exports to North Korea went up last year. And the United States and China are are sparring about, you know, trade policy in some ways. But good Lord, we get all of our stuff from China. Mm. So we just Literally. we just can't do this. And I don't think he understands that beating up on South Korea and China about North Korea does not happen in a vacuum. That's not just about North Korea's missile test. Mm. It's about all these other things. And I keep trying to put myself also in the mindset of North Korea and think, are they just, they just feel like this is our chance to call the bluff. He is a fool. He's going to keep talking and we're going to show the world. You're not going to do anything to us. So just leave us alone. We'll develop whatever weapons we want. You know, it's like my husband said, like, we don't really have any right to say what weapons they can and cannot have. I mean, for better, for worse, that's a crappy thing to realize, but we don't. And You know, I think that they've just realized, like, well, now we can expose sort of this bluff and do whatever we want, because I think they know, just like Steve Bannon told the whole world in that interview, that we're not going to put 30 million people in South Korea at risk. Yeah, I mean, what what is the end game here for for the North Korean regime? That's I just keep coming back to that question. What does he want right now? He's done 18 of these since President Trump was inaugurated. What is the goal? I mean, I think it's to exhibit his power and to say, you guys think I'm this like little crazy dude over here, but I have capacities and I'm a player. I think he wants to be taken seriously on the world stage. He wants to be in the he wants to be at the table. Right. And not be treated like the weird stepkid. 
I don't know. There's a part of me, too, and I don't like to go conspiracy theorist at all, ever. But there's a part of me that wonders what else is going on here. This is expensive. North Korea's economy has improved, but it's not great. It's nothing. It's a drop in the ocean compared to the world economy. There's been reporting that some of these weapons are being manufactured in the Ukraine right? in a plant that used to be a supplier to the USSR during the Cold War. Like, what? what is really going on here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we think we only think about it in terms of North Korea and the United States, but there's a lot of other countries involved in this. <laughs> Maybe the president should start playing Risk. Like, mm. do you think that would help? Uh, no, I don't think anything would help. That's okay. depressing, but that's how I was I just trying to think of something that might capture his attention and put some of this into greater context. Uh, man, I hate that we have to talk about him like that, but I think that's just the reality of the situation at this point. I think it is. And I don't know what the right thing is to do. I mean, I'm being kind of flippant about our president right now, mostly because I'm very frustrated with the language coming out of the administration. I hear people who say, look, if if Kim Jong-un understands that we will take action, he will stop because his sole objective is to stay in power. And maybe that's true, but I don't see that 18 no. missile tests later. That does not make sense to me. No. And so I've been trying to think about what what would speak to whatever that regime is doing? I read this fable to my daughter, Ellen, who's two this morning, about the sun and the wind. Do you know that one? Mm-mm. So the sun and the wind are having this discussion about who's more powerful. And the wind's getting really mad because he's, the wind is trying to say that he is more powerful. Both of them have the male pronoun in this fable. And the son finds a guy on a on a beach who's wearing a coat, and he says, I bet you can't get his coat off. And so the wind blows and blows, and the guy zips his coat, and he puts his hood on. He's getting colder and colder, and then he finally seeks shelter, and the wind gets mad and gives up. And the sun says, I can do it. And the sun starts shining a little brighter and a little brighter and a little brighter, and the guy takes the coat off. And the moral of the story is that gentle power is better than force. Mm. And it just made me think so much about this. And I know that that probably prompts some eye rolling from people who are uh, in a different place than I am about these issues. But I just wonder, like, what what is that alternative in this situation? Well, I mean, I think we know what it is. They We've been doing it for, what, 30 years across different parties and across different presidents. It was well, I can't remember the term for that sort of diplomacy that we were using with them. But it was it was just like. Ignore him, ignore him, ignore him. And now he knows he is a president that won't ignore him. Yeah, strategic patience, I think strategic we've, patience. we've called it. And, and you know, we have done economic sanctions and other things. And I think it's fair to say our strategic patience has led us to a place where we have much fewer options. That's the other side of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what the solution is, but I would love to see a more robust discussion than we will blast you off this planet if we have to. Okay, let's compliment the other side. Who are you complimenting today, Beth? I wanted to compliment John Bell Edwards. He is the Democratic governor of Louisiana, and he is featured in a great Politico magazine profile, which we will include in the show notes. We talk a lot about um, how well Republican governors perform in traditionally blue states. And here we have really the only Democratic governor in the Deep South. 
and he enjoys broad bipartisan support. He has complex views that kind of meet the needs of the state, and it just seems to be working there. He seems to be really effective, just like some of the Republican governors in blue states that we've talked about. So I wanted to give him a shout out and be sure to include that article because I think there's a lot to learn from this. I am complimenting Ted Cruz, everybody. Good old white chocolate Ted Cruz himself. Um, <laughs> That's a throwback to So Jennifer from Port Arthur, who messaged us earlier, um, and we talked about her, or we shared her email in our weekly email, which if you haven't subscribed to, you should. You can do that at PantsuPoliticsShow.com. Um, she emailed us an actual picture of Ted and she said, Ted Cruz came to Port Arthur today. I thought it would just be a photo op, but he was very present, present and sincere. Damn it. Which I thought was also sort of funny, but Hey, listen, mad props, mad props are coming. And I'll throw in, um, the vice president and the cabinet members that traveled with him for good measure, because I also thought their visit was, um, sincere and did all the things that it's supposed to do, which is encourage the community spotlight, the people going above and beyond and saying that the federal government is here for you. So good job. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? 
Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. So today we are talking pensions. Pensions are the hottest topic in Kentucky right now. And we wanted to talk about Kentucky's problem, how that reflects a national problem and some of the solutions on the table. But before we get started, we wanted to do sort of like a baby pension primer. So in 1875, this is interesting information I did not have. The American Express Company was the first private pension plan in the United States. And it was an effort to create sort of a stable, career-oriented workforce. And from there, they private pension plans grew, particularly in the private sector. Now, here's a fun fact. Around this time in the late 19th century, 75% of all males over 65 are working. And by the time you start getting public pension or public retirement benefits like Social Security, which was enacted in 1935, the life expectancy is about 60 years old. (laughs) Um, If a male over 65 was not working around this time, it was likely because he was disabled. So we enact Social Security. It's believed that most workers will not live for an extended period after retirement and that Social Security benefits will really be just for a minimal amount of time. So you have this growth in the private sector leaks into the public sector. Then a key event in 1963 sort of changed private pensions in particular and pushed for pension reform. And a South Bend, Indiana-based car manufacturer, the Studebaker, I know Studebakers, I don't know how many people do, but saw its pension plan collapse as a result of the company's bankruptcy. So that event resulted in a 10-year push for federal legislation to oversee pensions, culminating in the passage of the Employment Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, known as ERISA. It's been amended several times since. ERISA requires companies to adequately fund their pension plans and mandates that workers vest their pensions benefits after a minimum number of years. But now I think you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find that sort of defined benefit benefit plan in which you retire and you get like a salary after retirement. I mean, you're in the H, um, HR field, but do you see a lot of defined benefit plans like that in the private sector? I don't think you do really, do no, you? No, you really don't anymore. Most everyone has moved to defined contribution plans where you get a certain amount of uh, from your employer put into the plan, but there's no guarantee as to how that plan's going to ref- perform. I mean, the whole idea of retirement plans is we put away money now, we invest that money on the assumption that it will grow because of our investment. And that hasn't happened. Um, for a lot of people in this generation because of the financial crisis in 2008. And so uh, 
going forward, the risk has really been shifted away from the employer to the employee. The employer is going to give you the money now and what happens to it um, happens and you have to figure out how to make that work in retirement. So not surprisingly, the government side of pensions has been slower to change. So there's been a lot of writing and researching about um, the public pension liabilities. So Moody's, the investment service, and it's one of the nation's top credit rating agencies, estimate that the federal unfunded pension liability, including civilian and military, has risen to about $3.5 trillion, about 20% of GDP. And they pegged the state and local government unfunded liabilities roughly at the same amount, bringing the total U.S. pension shortfall shortfall to 40% of GDP. And that hurts. That hurts real bad. So state and local governments sort of, there's a lot of blame and there's a lot of cause and there's a lot of solutions on the table, but they you still have these massive unfunded liabilities and Kentucky has one of the largest ones. New Jersey, Kentucky and Illinois are the ones facing that sort of the the biggest crises right now. And I thought this was a really interesting um quote from Rolling Stone which did a big piece on this and it said once upon a time local corruption was easy, it was votes for jobs. Doty said with a sigh, a ward would turn out for a councilman. The councilman would come back with jobs from a city budget contract. That was the deal. What's going on with public pensions is more confusing, modern version of that local graft. With public budgets carefully scrutinized by everyone from the press to regulators, the black box of pension funds makes it the only possible, only public treasure left that's easy to steal. Politicians quietly borrow millions from these funds by not paying their ARCs. And that's the um, sort of the rate required contribution. Yeah, the contribution rates. And it's time that and it's that money plus the savings from cuts made to workers' benefits in the name of emergency pension reform that pays for an appro- apparently endless regime of corporate tax breaks and handouts. So one of the most interesting things um, I read about sort of nationally, and I think this applies to Kentucky. So you have um, – this was a big battle that our governor, Bevan uh, Matt Bevan, had when he came in, which is you're overestimating the returns of these pensions, right? You're saying they're going to return on a 7% rate. That's ridiculous. They're not going to do that. So they fight about that. So you'll hear some people in Kentucky say – we have $30 billion unfunded, and some people say $60 billion unfunded, and that sort of back and forth is about estimating the rate of return. Then you definitely have um, people not making sufficient contributions over time, governments um, not making the the rate of contribution that they should. But what's really interesting is I read it, it said a study noted by economist Dean Baker of the Center of Economic Policy and Research said in February 2011 – Had public pension funds not been invested in the stock market and exposed to mortgage-backed securities, there would be no shortfall at all. So even if if they weren't making contributions, even if they were overestimating recession, it was really the recession of 2008 that put us in such a terrible place nationwide with pensions. And look, that happened in private pensions as well. There were entire private pensions that went bankrupt because of the recession. So um, that's where we're at. There's just... Not enough money to meet the obligation to retired public employees in Kentucky and in other states nationwide. It's just, there's just not enough. There's a lot of complicated math at how we got here, but the math now is pretty simple. There ain't enough money. And you should also know that Kentucky has taken stabs at this problem before. Kentucky, like other states, has changed the rules for new hires, so moved to more of a combination of pension and 401k, that combo of defined benefit, defined contribution 
there are some options around that as one of our leading uh, left-leaning think tank policy executives in Kentucky has said in numerous conversations I've heard from him, we've screwed new hires all day. And so we've done that, but we haven't been able to deal with the current obligations to people in the system that we cannot pay for. And Kentucky has laws that are known as the inviolable contract laws that say there are real limits on what we can do to change the bargain between someone who earned these benefits during their tenure and are receiving it now in the state. So, and here's the thing. I think that my beef with a lot of Democrats, the way they talk about the pension problem, is they act like dealing with future hires is going to solve the problem. And that is simply not true. There is not, we could screw new hires six way to Sunday. It's not going to fix this problem. And I wish that some people would stop talking about that like that's the solution because it just isn't. One of the things that I wanted to say about this conversation in Kentucky that I think is very emblematic of the national dialogue. We are talking about this in really binary and reductive terms. Are teachers good or bad? Like that is the, that is not going to solve this problem. You know, the governor has been, I think, very inartful in his communications about this and has talked about teachers as though they're gaming the system. One of the major issues in Kentucky I don't know that it's that major of an issue, but it's contributory is sick days. We don't need to have a debate about whether teachers are properly using their sick days or not to address the situation here. And I think it's just been very alienating to parties who desperately need to be at the table to solve this problem. Like, let's just start off by assuming teachers choose a career in public service because they want to do good public service. Is that true for every single teacher? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Let's assume that because that's what's going to help solve this problem. Right. And I think it's true of the vast majority of them. Teachers are not trying to game the system. Public employees in general, there are different retirement systems in Kentucky at issue here because there are hazardous workers, retirement systems, non-hazardous workers and teachers. All of them are at the table here. So I think we should just assume all of those people took a career in public service for great reasons, that they serve the state admirably, that they accepted less compensation up front because of this promise of more compensation during retirement. If I think if we set the table with good intent, good intent assumed by everyone and the governor doesn't hate teachers, the governor is trying to solve what is legitimately a fiscal crisis in the state. We can go a lot further with the with the conversation. I think one of my in my beef with sort of the other side and the way they talk about this, and I'll say uh, our Republican governor and other conservative legislators across the country, is there's been this idea of like, well, we'll put some of this money in hedge funds and then in Kentucky has done this and pay these massive hedge fund fees. And there's a part of me that really, really bristles at the idea that we are suffering in part from a crisis that the financial industry created in 2008. And now they're coming along and saying, give us your pensions and we'll fix it and we'll invest it really well in these hedge funds. I mean, put it in an index fund that doesn't cost very much money and has almost no fees. I really like there was a story I read about Rhode Island and Rhode Island put them in hedge fund and the amount they paid in hedge fund fees was like several million dollars and was almost the exact same amount that they took away of in cost of living adjustments. That's unacceptable. The idea that we would roll back cost of living adjustments for these for pension uh, recipients and what they were promised in order to pay hedge fund managers to bail us out from a crisis their industry created. Not cool. Not on board with that. Not on board. 
If we're losing you on cost of living adjustments, the idea there is that you have a defined benefit. So we tell people, once you retire, here's the amount of money that you're going to get every year. But the legislature periodically increases that amount of money because inflation and other factors just makes it more expensive to live. And there are folks who argue pretty vigorously in Kentucky that our legislature has also done some retroactive benefit enhancements that have made this problem worse over time. Of course, there are varying perspectives on all of that. And the reason this has come to a head in Kentucky now is because our Republican governor and our Republican-controlled legislature have said They are taking responsibility for this problem, and they are going to do something about it. So they hired a consulting firm to come in and study the plans and make recommendations, and they are talking about holding a special session in the fall to deal with this. Now, Kentucky, like the rest of the country, is also talking about tax reform. And so I think part of what makes all of this really interesting and really applicable beyond Kentucky is there's this tension, like what goes first? It's sort of like healthcare and tax reform on the national scale. What, what should you be doing first and how much does revenue impact this problem and revenue defined by either tax cuts that we think bring in new business and therefore new tax revenue or tax cuts that leave us with less money to pay things out? Well, and the interesting thing is that the governor went to these this cons- these consultings and the studies and asked for proposals and asked for proposals that would not raise revenue. What can we do without raising revenue to fix a $60 billion pension short fund? Come on. The only answer is, I mean, they were talking about rolling back the cost, taking away cost of living adjustments and reducing some people's pension payouts by like 25%. You're going to put people in poverty. What would you, what would all of us do if all of a sudden our income dropped by 25%? You know, like, I think that that is, I understand. I don't know if the idea was like, let's scare people. And then when we really offer what we want to do, including some revenue raising, they will be grateful because we rolled out these really intense suggestions. I mean, I don't know if that's the strategy or not. But I don't know if it's a necessarily good one because it it sets up this adversarial discussion like you were talking about, as opposed to there's not enough money. Everybody's invested in finding a solution because there is not enough money to pay these people, period. So what are we going to do? Can we talk a little bit about as you were as you were going through the history of this? There is so much thinking underlying pension systems that I think has changed Mm -hmm. that needs to be re-examined. And I, and again, I'm not talking about people who are, you know, already in the system and relying on these dollars today. We've got to fix that. But going forward, if you think about it, pensions are kind of based on the idea of we are all entitled to retire at a certain point and retirement means that you don't work at all. Like there's such a spectrum available now because of just the nature of work in this country. It's not like you work 40 hours a week or you retire. Right. And so we don't have any picture of that. And that is a place where I think as it relates to the teacher's retirement system in Kentucky, there might be some room for creativity. We have an enormous shortfall of substitute teachers in every county in this state and aides. But teachers can't earn over a certain amount of money post-retirement or it jeopardizes their pension benefits. Don't you think there's some room to kind of work with those rules there to solve two problems at one time? Well, I think the problem is when you say we're not talking about people already in the system, like it's just very difficult to compartmentalize this conversation. And I say this as someone who gets, look, my 
mother and my grandmother are both public employees. Heck, I'm one now. I'm paying into the system, but I'm one of those new hires that get screwed, which is fine. I don't care. That's not why I ran for office. But, you know, I think, you know, I know that they're, that they, I'm just saying I have a personal stake in people and their pensions. Yeah, my mom is a teacher receiving her pension right now from the state of Kentucky. So, but I say this to, you know, I say this to my mom and grandmother too. Look, there's just a part of me that when you talk to a public employee, there's just this sort of, you can't detach from how you feel about the system, changes in the system without upsetting the people already in it. Like, it's just a very hard line to walk. It's hard for me to say, it's not that I don't want you not to get paid the pension you were promised, but this system is kind of crap. Nobody works like that anymore. I don't, no one else out in the private sector functions under this understanding that they're going to get a salary. I mean, I know people that have, you know, my mom used to work at the highway department and we're talking about people who retired when they were like, you know, stored up to sick days and did all the stuff and retired at 50 fully capable adults. And so there is resentment for people outside the system. And so when people, you know, people see all that, it's, I feel like it's a sort, it's a similar resentment you hear from people who work and live among people on welfare, the social safety net, you sort of see people and you think that's not fair. I never got access to that. And you hear that sort of, you hear that, you hear that resentment. I hear, I feel it. I'm not going to lie. I feel it sometimes when people talk about the pension system, just like, come on, that's not the world we live in anymore. I don't even f- live my life as if I'm ever going to get social security. I pay into it and I just pretend it's not going to be there. And so, you know, I, I, there's, I think this very generational, very sort of, um, entitlement on one side, resentment on the other, that sort of keeps this conversation from moving forward in a productive manner. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin. I take a probiotic. And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. 
Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15. Well, look, we can all day debate the merits of hard work. I think I'm more productive and and what what constitutes hard work, right? Because if you have people who have that resentment on one side and teachers on the other who are explaining to you, you know, teachers work very hard and make not enough money. I mean, that's the thing. Like, can we have this conversation in the context of what do we want for students and for our education system? And I think there are a lot of benefits of going to a more private sector type approach in terms of both compensation and benefits. Mm -hmm. So I think for new employees, we ought to be paying teachers more and not promising them these very generous retirement benefits that aren't competitive with the private sector. I would rather it be much easier beyond teachers, even for people to move in and out of the private and public sector. I think we will get better public employees if both the compensation and the benefits are competitive with non-public jobs. Well, here's what happens, though, right? So you say that and we go, yes, we should pay more people more. But then we say, well, we can't do that. For one thing, we don't have enough money to pay teachers more because we're paying out so much in pension benefits. And then people say, well, I'm not going to I don't want my taxes raised to pay people's pensions. Right. That pisses people off, too, for a spectrum of psychological reasons, both fair and not fair. And so then we're back. So then we're back to this like, well, we can't raise taxes because people feel resentment that they're paying for these sort of pension systems and social safety nets that people they feel like people are exploiting. So we can't raise taxes to do the good things that would help. But you know what I mean? Like we're in this really tough double bind. And one thing about that resentment that I think is noteworthy and that is not rooted in wholly unproductive conversation is that a lot of private employees lost their pensions in the financial crisis. I mean, I did Chapter 11 bankruptcy work. That's the area of law I practiced in. And I saw pensions go. And expectations on retirement benefits from employers were just gone. One day Mm -hmm. they existed and one day they were gone. 
And so it is a really painful subject for a lot of people. And I can understand particularly why somebody who had that just wiped out in the private sector would then resent having their taxes increased to not change anything about the current bargain in the public sector. So I think that this is not a problem that we're going to be able to solve on the phone today. But I think that there there are a couple of principles that would be helpful in this conversation and lots of others. Another thing that our governor has done, while I applaud his doggedness about fixing this, because I, I agree. I do, too. And that, I want to say that. Yeah, I think he's done a good job being like, we are not like, we have to fix this. There's just not enough money. We're not going to kick the can. I mean, he says kick the can too much. But otherwise, I do like that part. It's true. And he's right, because the longer we wait, the fewer options we'll have available to us. We're kind of getting there already. So I admire that. However, here's my criticism of our governor. He tends to be far too partisan Mm -hmm. about everything. He does attach this sort of morality of people gaming the system or not, which is just completely unproductive here. He is too much modeling after Donald Trump and sort of blame the media. Every single thing that you see from our governor about this is don't trust the media. Check it out yourself. No, there's some very good reporting being done in Kentucky on this crisis. And so I think if he would just change the tone, this is going to be a multi-stakeholder solution if there is one to be found. So just get everybody together and do it. This doesn't need to be a battle of good and evil. It is just a problem to be solved because it's not even really a fault situation. Like the world turned upside down. The economy did something that we did not believe it was going to do. At the same time, the nature of work has shifted dramatically in the United States. So let's just put all that nonsense aside and say, we have a problem to solve. Let's sit down and go through what our options are and what can everybody live with. And the truth is, it's probably going to have to be a mix of taking some benefits away mm-hmm. and adding some taxes. That like That's just what's going to have to happen here. Because here's the thing, too, that really bothers me, because he doesn't do that narrative about the recession, though. The narrative is... The Democrats, when they were in charge, let's be real, he never really quite says that, but that's what he means, took all the money, and it's their fault. And it really bothers me because, like I said, yes, there were not adequate contributions, and I agree with him that the estimation of returns needed to be adjusted. I do not think he needed to, like, bar the doors of the freaking pension board and do what he did all that and cost us a bunch of money in legal fees over suits involved with how he did that, but whatever, cool and like just stop it's complicated how we got here it's not helpful to do that and i will also say that you know there's a part of me that when i hear the public employee side talk about this i just kind of want to be like i understand you know look i sat in a room with public employees because a really interesting aspect of this is that there are two systems in kentucky the kentucky employment retirement system and the county employee retirement system and the county employee retirement system which is what it sounds like city and county employees is much better funded. And so they want to split off. And if they don't, and they raise all these contribution levels, it could dramatically impact my town. I'm talking, we would have to let people go. We would have money for parks. Like it would be very, very bad. And so, you know, so there's also a part of me that like to the others, to the county employees, like I understand the concern with benefits, but And I'm not saying we should discount that, but like you guys have to acknowledge we have to do, there will be, it's not, you're going to fight to keep benefits that won't be there. There won't be any money to pay them. You're going to fight tooth and nail to keep things the same. And there's, it doesn't, it's not going to matter because the money is not going to be there. So, I mean, I just feel like there's this very adversarial 
vibe that's not going to get us anywhere because it's such a huge problem to fix. And it is going to take revenue. And I've said from the beginning, I really wish Matt Bevan would have just rolled into office and said, right when he was first elected, said, hi, guys, sorry, I didn't do this, but now I got to fix it. Bam, tax increases. But and and whatever. look, sorry, I didn't do this tax increases and some painful spending cuts. It's going to take a combination. It's just going to have to be both. And I don't like that as a Kentucky citizen, both on the the expense and the revenue side. But that's where we are. It just is. So less partisanship, more problem solving. That's what we need around this crisis. Put me and Beth in charge. Also, the end. What is on your mind outside of politics this week, Sarah? So what is on my mind outside politics is politics. No, I'm going to D.C. this week for our Chamber of Commerce um, trip to D.C. My, I don't want to I'm just going to take a moment and brag on my town. We have like 40 people from my town going. We're meeting with the Department of Energy, the Department of Labor. I mean, I'm just we have a really powerful sort of um and well-organized lobbying presence. I'm very proud of us. We go up there. We talk about Paducah. We push for what's best for Paducah. We have these trips to Frankfurt as well. And it's my first one. I'm really excited to go back back to be and um, excited to be back in D.C. I plan on going to the African-American Museum while I'm there, which I've not been to yet. And I'm super excited to go to and report back to you guys about. And I'm just um, I'm really excited about the trip. That sounds awesome. I'm excited to hear about your trip. So I am making life changes. <laughs> That's what's life on my changes. mind. Um, I have just gone part-time at my job. It's not like half-time. It's still more than that, about 75% of what I was working, which is a big change for me. And I'm excited about it. Woo-hoo. And um, I'm really th- excited about it. It's going to let me spend more time on Pantsy Politics, which was a driving force. It's going to let me get my daughter off the bus in the afternoons, which was also very important to me, and do some personal coaching, which is something that I have always wanted to do. I really like helping people get unstuck from problems, and so I'd like to do some of that as well. So lots more to come on all of that, but it's just an interesting time for me. So I'm trying to kind of change the pie chart of my life in a lot of senses. I've done some work on how I eat and exercise, and I'm working on my house like crazy. It's just a new season. You know, I'm ready for a new season. That's exciting. I love new seasons. I'm also ready for the like literal new season fall in case anybody, in case Mother Nature's listening. We had a little bit of cool days this morning and there was a part of me that just, I think it was that climate change article. It really freaked me out and I just thought it's going to be hot forever. It's okay. I'm just going to adapt accordingly. But then I walked out one morning, it was cool. And I'm like, oh, right. I remember what this felt like. (laughs) (laughs) And it's really beautiful and good. I'm excited about it too. I've already started pulling recipes for Thanksgiving. I cannot wait. So thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. As always, we have to thank our executive producers, my husband, Nicholas, and soon again, Chad's joining the ranks of executive producer. We're excited to have him on board. That's Beth's husband, by the way. And our big supporters, Tracy, Leslie, and Sabrina. You can follow us on social media, Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, Instagram at Facebook and Facebook Pantsuit Politics. You can leave us a review on the Apple podcast app and until what would be Friday until Friday. Keep it nuanced, y'all. <laughs>